Apparently, some of the other people this morning were not morning people either. Uh, we had six people there, and I counted two of them asleep during my sermon. So, <laughs> on the plus side, I'm batting 600. So, <laughs> it's uh, wonderful to be here. I usually sit in a corner at the back there at the 11:15 service. This has been my parish for three years. Uh, I'm a religious studies and philosophy teacher at the Bishop School, which is an Episcopal school here in the diocese. And I teach at the School for Ministry, which some of you may have heard of, which is the seminary attached to the diocese. And I was there yesterday with Colin and Mother Laurel and some of you for uh, um, Hannah Wilder's ordination as a priest. Uh, I, I was, Hannah was one of my students. I teach the biblical studies classes at the seminary. And I, I wrote in her card, I, apparently we're not supposed to have favorites in church, but Jesus had Peter and... Hannah, you, Hannah would have been my favorite student so far, so that was a wonderful day. Has any of you heard of a, an English dessert called banoffee pie? So, so some people there. I, I had a friend when I was at college who was a huge fan of banoffee pie, and whenever we went out to a restaurant or to a pub, she would always have banoffee pie, and then one day we were having lunch, and she was eating banoffee pie, and she said, oh my God! I said, what is it? She said, banana and toffee. Banoffee pie. <laughs> I, I hadn't realized either, so it was a, an epiphany for me. Uh, but I often forget when I was here, when I moved here to North Park, that we are North Park because we are north of Balboa Park. I didn't get that for about 15 months. <laughs> and South Park is three blocks away south of Upus. It's not south of the park, it's east of the park, right? But I guess it's south of North Park, so it must be South Park. But one of the joys of living in this neighborhood is being able to enjoy the wonderful green open space and the beautiful architecture that we have over at Balboa Park. And a few weeks before Christmas, I was over at Balboa Park with a friend on a Sunday afternoon, and we were walking through, and one of the things you can do on uh, Sunday afternoons in Balboa Park is you can visit the, the little United Nations village. Has anyone been to the United Nations village there? It's a, it's a, it's a tribute to most of the countries of the world, but mostly Europe. Uh, there is a China to represent Asia, and there's a Peru to represent all of South America, but there's, um, there's a lot of very obscure European countries there crowding out all the space. And I discovered something I didn't know, which is that there is a house of the United States of America in Balboa Park. Because presumably the people there need to know about American culture and, uh, and maybe meet some Americans. They wouldn't know there were any Americans here in San Diego. If you go in the house of the United States, you know, to introduce you to American culture, I went in. They have a big display of antique guns and a big screen TV showing a college football game. So I guess that, that's all you need to know about the United States of America. And then I noticed another little house that I'd never noticed before, which was the House of Ukraine is right next to the House of the United States. So I thought, great, I, I want to go and see the House of Ukraine. There's a big sign on the door saying, the House of Ukraine is closed. So I went back to the house of the United States. I grabbed a Sharpie, and I went back, and I added it to the bottom of the sign, until you give us dirt on Joe Biden. <laughs> because it, that's probably why it's closed, right? So next to the house of the United Nations, um, I walked over to the organ pavilion. And if you've been at the organ pavilion at Christmas time, 
they have all these kind of garden sheds at the back of the organ pavilion seating area where they have this really creepy nativity. They have these kind of porcelain mannequins, full-size mannequins. If, if you had a nightmare dream about being stuck on a fair ride and it was nativity themed, this is what it would look like. And they have all these little sheds and they have Jesus and uh, so they have Mary and the angel and they have Mary and Joseph on the donkey going to Bethlehem and they have Jesus being born in the manger and they have the shepherds coming and they have the wise men coming. And I was struck because I already knew that I was going to have the gospel today about the, the visit of the wise men and Mary and Joseph escaping into Egypt. I was struck by this beautiful uh, uh, little uh, display of Mary and Joseph on their donkey, not going to Bethlehem, but traveling past this beautiful painted backdrop of pyramids as they go on their flight to Egypt. Uh, clearly, some people had got upset about this nativity because on the other side of the, part of the other side of the organ pavilion, there is a shrine to reason that had been put up by an organization called Freedom From Religion Foundation. I think it's the one that Ron Reagan, the, the son of Ronald Reagan, uh, does ads for on TV. And they had this very creepy cartoon of some of the founding fathers you know, with the Statue of Liberty and then the Constitution in the manger. Uh, uh, if you look at Thomas Jefferson, he seems to be doing something very inappropriate with the Statue of Liberty in the picture. <laughs> but going back to uh, uh, the Mary and Joseph in Egypt, in front of all of these, I think there's seven of these little sheds that have these little displays in them, there is a fence that stops you going in. I mean, uh, people will presumably try and go in and take selfies or something. And on each of the fences, and I noticed this one particularly in the one of Mary and Joseph and Jesus in Egypt, it said, Merry Christmas, and please, in capitals, no entry. Merry Christmas, and please, no entry. And you could imagine that we could put that on America's borders right now. Because that's what it might seem like to the world that America is saying. Merry Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas. But no entry allowed. You imagine Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus coming to America as they came to Egypt as refugees? Because that's what they are. They're refugees. Mary and Joseph from Bethlehem. Is that Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Bethlehem Palestinian territories? Isn't that a Muslim area? No, you can't come in. Do you speak English? No, you can't come in. You're a carpenter? You don't have an advanced degree in education? No, you can't come in. If you've been watching the news the last few days, you'll see that we're in the midst of another political and religious crisis in the Middle East with the assassination of this general from Iran. And Jesus himself was born into a political and religious crisis in the Middle East. We see in today's story the highlight of uh, 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 this figure that everyone loves to hate in Jewish history, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. He was really Herod the Great. He had earned that title because if you go to Israel today, nobody has put a bigger footprint on Israel throughout history than this man, Herod the Great. He took over Israel um, as a client king for the Romans. So basically, he works for the Roman Empire, but they put him in charge of running Israel. And the Israelis hate him because he's not really Jewish. He's mostly Romanized. His father was a Roman general, 
Um, his mother was a foreigner. He's only really half Jewish in his heritage. And he doesn't really care that much about Judaism as a culture or a religion or a faith. But he does care about making Israel great again. And he does everything he can, building roads, building new ports, building fortresses, building a huge mausoleum for himself so he can be buried in great grandeur, um, but also rebuilding entirely the city of Jerusalem, which was pretty decrepit by that day, by that time. And that included ripping down the rebuilt temple and building an entirely new temple. Not because he was religious, but because he thought it would redound to his own glory. He wanted Jerusalem to be, in his words, the Athens of the East. And this temple is bigger than any other temple in the ancient world at that time. Its walls were 100 feet high, 30 to 70 feet thick. And the surface area of the temple is the size of 12 football fields. It took 80 years to build. And at the time of Jesus, it was a construction site. When Jesus goes up to the temple, there would have been scaffolding, there would have been craftsmen and workmen working on finishing the temple. It wasn't finished until about 30 years after the death of Jesus. Then seven years later, the Romans raised it to the ground. And Herod was an incredibly brutal, nasty individual. He may have come to power by poisoning his own father. And that made him very paranoid about what his own sons might do to him. He was polygamous, he had multiple wives, and he had multiple sons, and the sons that he was suspicious of, he put to death. He killed three of his own sons. Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, said about Herod the Great, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Now, any time a Roman emperor is commending your brutality, you're off the charts. And Caesar knew what Jews thought of pigs. So when Herod hears from these wise men that there's a new king being born, and he checks among his wives in the harem, and none of them are pregnant, and none of them have recently delivered a child, he freaks out. And he concocts this plan with these foreigners to track down who this would-be king would be, and then to massacre them, to massacre all the babies in the area where this king was going to be born. There was not a little shed in the Balboa Park nativity of the slaughter of the innocents. And you don't usually see it in Christmas pageants. So what do Mary and Joseph and Jesus do? After the wise men had visited and given their gifts, three gifts, right? But it never says there's three wise men. There could have been ten wise men, and only three of them bought gifts. There could have been six, and they went halfsies. After the wise men have been told to go back to the east, Joseph is told in a dream by God to go to Egypt, because it's no longer safe for them to stay in Bethlehem. And so the holy family, as I saw in that nativity, become refugees. They are escaping brutal political and religious persecution in their homeland where they are no longer welcome and it's no longer safe for them to be. And so they go into exile in Egypt. Now Egypt at that time was part of the Roman Empire too. It had a client monarchy like Herod 
It was a guy called Ptolemy, and he had a famous mom. Anyone know who Ptolemy's mother was? Cleopatra, that's right. Yeah, he was one of the last monarchs of the Cleopatra Greek dynasty. His mother died about 30 years earlier with her lover, Mark Anthony. And Egypt was full of all of the pagan temples of Egyptian religion. But it was also uh, full of new Greek and Roman temples to the Greek and Roman pagan gods, to Zeus and Jupiter and uh, 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 Apollo and Athena and all the gods and goddesses of the Roman pantheon. So this is a huge pagan idol-worshipping culture that Mary and Joseph end up in. But they have a safe place to go there because there is a huge Jewish refugee population in Egypt at that time. Jews had been living in Egypt for the past 700 years. Since the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century BCE, and then the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah in the 6th century BCE, Jews had been pushed out of their land and had to live in exile as refugees. It's called the Jewish diaspora, like the dispersal of leaves from a tree. And even today, there are four times as more Jews living outside of Israel than there is living inside Israel. And there's quite a lot of evidence to believe that at the time of Jesus, baby Jesus in this case, there were more Jews living in Egypt than there were in Israel. And so Mary and Joseph would have found a welcoming home in Egypt. They would have found people speaking their own language. They would have found a community who was willing to help them. They would have found a place to live. They would have had places to worship. They would have found stores that sold the food that they're used to eating and cooking and preparing. And they could have easily blended in then to that culture and been absorbed into that Jewish community in exile. But they would have still experienced the stresses and strains of living apart from their homeland. And we know that they desired to go back. We have no idea how that might have impacted the baby Jesus. Presumably, he was still an infant when they returned to Israel at the end of Matthew 2. Like most refugees, most of the stress would have fallen on Mary and Joseph, his parents. And Matthew, in telling this story, is reminding his audience of another baby in Egypt who was threatened in a massacre organized by a brutal and repressive dictator. And that baby was called Moses. That's right. Matthew was reminding his audience about Moses. Because Matthew wants his audience to connect together Jesus and Moses. And before Jesus is even out of diapers, he's reenacted the most famous narrative in Jewish history, which is the Exodus. The Jews coming up out of Egypt, out of exile, and returning to the promised land, this time with Mary and Joseph returning with Jesus to Nazareth. And Moses lived his entire life in exile. Moses never went to Israel. He was born in Egypt. He lived in Egypt. He had that time when he was out in uh, um, the, the, uh, the desert. Um, uh, and then returned to Egypt, and then lived in Sinai for 40 years, and he gets to see the promised land from Mount Nebo, but never gets to go there. 
But while he and the Jews are traveling back to Israel, they are given by Moses on a mountain the law, the Torah, the commandments. How many? No, 613. You just know the the most popular ones, right? You just know the spark notes. There's 613 of them in the commandments, in the Torah. They're given the rules by which they will identify themselves as a community in exile, as they will know that they are the chosen people of God. Even if they're not living in their homeland, the Torah gives them their citizenship, if you like, their identity as a people. And a few chapters after the chapter that we read today in Matthew 2, in Matthew 5, Jesus will go up a mountain too. And he will gather his followers around him, and he will preach a sermon, which is the Christian equivalent of the giving of the Torah on Mount Sinai. And Jesus will set out for his community, his followers, the rules, the constitution, the values, the manifesto of his new community, what he calls in the Gospels the kingdom of God. Because Jesus himself knows that he and his community are refugees in their own land. Everything that Jesus teaches is about one thing, life in the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about is always in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. There is a world out there in which we live, which has a completely different set of values to the ones that Jesus is talking about. And he sets them out at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that reading that we heard from John's Gospel um, at Christmas, the famous opening prologue to John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It says in verse 10, He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, what we say in the creed too, but here's the kicker, yet the world did not know him. Imagine that. He was in the world, the world came into being through him, but the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. He was a refugee in his own community. Now, we have in our community here many people who are not just spiritual refugees. We have many people who have lived the real tough, uh, uh, traumatic experience of being a physical refugee. And... I looked up this week, you know, what are the main challenges that face refugees when they come to a new country? Anybody venture to guess what some of the biggest challenges facing refugees are? This is the call and response time. Safety. Yeah, safety. Security. Language. Language acquisition is number one. Yeah, language acquisition. Housing. Absolutely. Food. Yeah. Work, employment, yes. Taking care of your children, particularly their education. And connecting to services, yes? 
yeah, make, making yourself familiar with the government systems, welfare, employment, absolutely, all of those things, definitely. All of which causes a massive amount of stress. And the last one, which is what I want to talk about today, is cultural integration. Entering a new culture and learning to live with and survive and adapt to that culture. Now, I carry on me all the time one of these. Does anybody have one of these? No, it's not a credit card. <laughs> this is my green card, yeah. Because I'm a foreigner, I'm an immigrant. You can hear from my funny accent. It may not be obvious in the way I look or uh, the way I dress, but you know, usually when I open my mouth, when you hear my sense of humor, you can probably figure it out. And this says, according to American law, I am a resident alien. That's my official title under US law. We probably have some other resident aliens in the room today. I live here, but I am alien, which comes from the Latin word which means other. And I face in a small aspect what some of you may face in a much bigger aspect, which is a sense of finding your place in the world. When I go back to England, everyone will say, you sound so American. Look at the way you complain about service in a restaurant. You've been ruined. And whenever I go anywhere here, people say, where are you from? Australia? New Zealand? South Africa? And I'm in the peculiar place of not quite fitting in here and not quite fitting in in my own home culture now. And at the school where I teach, we have a lot of students whose parents are first-generation immigrants, students who may have been born in foreign countries themselves. By their appearance, by the way they talk, by their names, it may be very obvious that they are not native-born Americans. And they feel very disjointed about this issue of cultural integration. I take students to India every two years on a community service trip. And some of the what's called non-resident Indians or Indian students, Indian Americans born in this country who go with me on this trip, they have a real hard time because when they go back to see their family in India, their family says, oh, you're all Americans. And anyone they see in America immediately says, you're Indian. And when they go back to India, they may go back to very beautiful, upper middle class, wealthy uh, corners of India, but they don't necessarily see the parts of India that I will take them to on a community service trip. And it's pretty amazing to see them connect that to their own cultural identity during the course of the trip. The church is an institution of resident aliens. We live in the kingdoms of this world but we ought not to be part of the kingdoms of this world. We ought to find ourselves as refugees in the world. Our job is not to adapt to the world that we live in. And our job is not simply to survive the world we find ourselves in. Our job is to be the church.
The church is not a place. The church is not a building. Church is not a noun. Church is a verb. This place, this beautiful building, this is a place that we come to in time and space. But all of you here gather together as a community, you are the church. You are resident aliens in the world. And at the beginning of that sermon that I alluded to earlier, where Jesus talks to his disciples, he tells them what it's like to live in that refugee colony, the community of Christianity. He gives a list of things that God likes and implicitly what God dislikes. They're called the Beatitudes or the blessings. How many are there? Remember, Moses, how many are there? Ten, of course. Yes, no. Matthew sucked at math. There's nine. <laughs> Only it added one more. You know, blessed are those who tie their shoelaces because God's really down with that. You know, then we'd be going to have a perfect ten. You know, like count them on your fingers. But there's nine Beatitudes. But this list of the Beatitudes is fascinating because it tells us what God cares about. It tells us about the culture of Christianity. And culture is from a Latin word, cultus, which means to take care of. Like you cultivate, like the people who cultivate the earth outside of our church uh, in those beautiful gardens. They nurture it, they feed it, they water it, they fertilize it, and they make beautiful fruit and vegetables grow out of the ground. So culture is what we care about. And we know what our culture cares about. What does the kingdoms of this world, what does that culture care about that we are living in today? Money. Good. What else? Power. Land. Territory. Yeah. Status. Appearance. Yes. Beauty. Youthfulness. Success. Self-absorption. Technology. What matters to the kingdom of God? Jesus says, blessed are the poor. The poor matter. Blessed are the meek, the humble, the weak, the alienated, the marginalized. They matter. That's what matters. People who are merciful, they matter. If you're merciful in the Roman Empire, your parents take you to a psychiatrist. There's something wrong with you. Blessed are peacemakers. Not warmongers, not people who accelerate conflict, but people who go out of their way to reconcile individuals, to apologize, to offer forgiveness. Blessed are people who are pure in heart. Not people who have secondary motives. Not people who think of every dealing with another human being as transactional. People who respect the dignity and the worth and the infinite value of every other human being. Who do not treat them as means to an end. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Because if you care about all those things that God has just listed... You are going to be persecuted in this world because those are not the values of this world. 
And the church is facing an uphill task in living into those values that Jesus sets out there. Because we know what the world thinks of the church. I've been teaching students for 20 years now, 22 years. So I feel like I've got a good sense of what people below the age of 40 think about Christianity in the church. You want to play word association with Christianity in the church? What do they think of us? Rigid. Judgmental. Dogmatic. Hypocrites, yes. Don't do what they say. Naive. Unscientific or anti-science. Sexist. You say blessed, right, but you're in the church. Holier than thou, self-righteous, racist, homophobic. The church has got a terrible PR issue with the premillennial and postmillennial generation. But if you are a church that serves the poor and the needy, that values the marginalized over the powerful, the famous, the beautiful, the wealthy, you are going to be an odd group of people. And you are going to be at odds with the world in which you live at. You're not going to be popular necessarily. And we're a world that values popularity. We want likes on our social media. We want followers. I looked uh, uh, yesterday at who the 50 most popular people are on Instagram. Not one of them is a politician or a leader. Sports stars, musicians, actors, other celebrities. But leadership of that kind is not popular. Our power, though, is found in our example. As Gandhi once said, my life is my message. The church is a verb, not a noun. It's not what we say we believe, it's what we do. That's how we enact the values and the virtues of resident aliens. So in your marriage, in your family, with your brothers and sisters, with your children, with your parents, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, the way that you are, the person you are, the way you behave, the way you treat others, will people look at you and say, that person is weird. That person is odd. That person is strange. That person is peculiar. Because you are a resident alien. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. And we know things about the world that the world does not know. And even though the world is profoundly humanistic, we are more humane. We know the secret of the world, that the world was made by God. And we know the secret of why the world was made by God, so that human beings could live in fellowship with God and their fellow human beings, with love and compassion and justice and equality and fairness. 
We don't have to change the world. That's not our responsibility as the church. The world has already been changed because God chose to come and live among us, to be one of us, to be our brother, for us to be his brothers and sisters. That baby, that human being changed the world in his life, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection. And that's why the wise men traveled all that distance to come and see him. So in our readings today, in Jeremiah 31, we heard about Jeremiah's promise to the exiles living in Babylon, depressed, heartbroken, uh, demoralized because they've been turfed out of their promised land and their temple and their city has been destroyed. And Jeremiah tells them that God will one day restore them and bring them back and deliver them back to Israel, just as he had delivered his people in the time of Moses. But a few chapters earlier in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah warns the people, he has actually sent us into Babylon saying, it will be a long time. Build houses and live in them. Plant crops and gardens and eat what they produce. You are resident aliens in Babylon. In the psalm we said together today, we heard this joyous, exciting celebration of the institution of the temple in Israel. Because that's what made Israel the promised land. That's what made it special. Because God lived among his people in God's house in the temple. And in some ways, that's what the church is. The church is God's house. But God is present in his house in us. We are the body of Christ, as Paul describes us in the New Testament, in the world today. Where's the resurrected body of Jesus? Is it in a museum somewhere? Has someone got it in a closet? Can I go and see it at the Smithsonian? No. We are the resurrected body of Christ. And when people see you live the values of the kingdom of God, they should see not you, but the resurrected Jesus. And in the reading we heard from Ephesians, Paul reminds his community that they are this exciting new community. Resident aliens in the world of Ephesus, which was a center of pagan idolatry at that time. And Paul reminds them that they have been elected and chosen and they're beloved of God, but they should live faithful lives offering hope to one another and to those around them. So my challenge to you this week then is to live into your identity as a spiritual refugee as a resident alien in the world. And our home is the church. And we are the church. Whether you are Americans, whether you are Mexicans, whether you are from South Sudan, or North Sudan, or the Congo, or Eritrea, or Ethiopia, or Somalia, or even from England, this is your real home. Not this building, but this community. People can't tell who you are by what you look like, by how you speak, your accent, your dress, 
the food you eat. They will tell who you are by the way you live your life. And God, like the prodigal father's son, the prodigal son's father, is welcoming and waiting to greet you and bring you back home and say to you, welcome home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.